Hello and welcome to Where Creatives Connect. If you've not been here before, my name is Jamie Sharp and this is the podcast that brings you everything creative really. The behind the scenes of creative folk from all industries, whether they be in dance, musical theatre, composers, sculptors, dancers, you name it, I'll have them on. And it's my job to dig into the behind the scenes of what they do, their processes and how they've got to where they are. I'm very excited because I'm joined today by somebody that I've only just met about a month ago or so. Over the last 10 years, he has graced the West End stages of many, many different productions, including Les Miserables and Phantom of the Opera. Ashley Stilburn, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That's all right. How is life treating you at the moment? Uh, pretty good, yeah, I can't complain. Um, I, uh, I've got a seven-month-old who's keeping me very busy, who um, uh, has just changed our lives in, in all the most amazing ways. Um, and I'm doing lots of teaching, which is fantastic. And uh, yeah, and, and getting to be involved in things like this. So life's good. Brilliant. I'm glad to hear it. Now, if you were to be asked across, let's reverse a couple of years, maybe even pre-pandemic, if you were on the Tube in London and somebody saddled up next to you and asked you what you did for a living... What would your go-to be? What would you say you do? <laughs> well, depending on who it was, really. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I would have said I was an actor. Yeah, mm-hmm. a professional actor. Um, now uh, it's slightly different. I would I would um, very proudly say that I'm a teacher first and foremost. Um, I uh, <laughs> I did have when it, when I used to be in sort of Tesco or things like that, bagging up shopping, and the person behind the checkout, for instance, might ask me what I did. Um, I, I would. I would usually say something different um, because I just couldn't be bothered, man. Like <laughs> sometimes you say you're an actor, you feel like you've got to sort of explain that. Um, but you know, you you, you have actually you, not only you're an actor, you've done some acting, yes, you know, and you've done some real things that, that they know of. of as well. Yeah, it's all based on their terms, isn't yeah. It? And they, they, you know, you'd also you know, and it's very endearing, really. But you would always get the responses of, "Oh, I might see you on Coronation Street one day," or things like that. You know, which which was which was great. You know, it was always a laugh. But I, it did get to a point where you know, I, I just popped in for some fairy liquid or something, and sorry brand name and uh, <laughs> other, other washing up liquids are available and um uh yeah and i i, I would say i was a piano tuner <laughs> just make something up completely well different. it's semi-made up i i actually had this idea that i was gonna um branch into piano tuning um when i was doing a show called the braille legacy and i went and spent a day with this guy in north london <laughs> it way. was a ridiculous idea really um but i went to this workshop in north london where he had all these pianos just hanging from from the ceiling and like how, how he'd got them in there because it was like upstairs I, i've got no idea um and i really loved the idea of it but he as piano tuners are was so busy that he just wouldn't have had time to sort of teach me or anything like that. And I'm with you. it was it was either a case of, you know, taking myself out of acting altogether at that time and going and studying for two years in, in Grantham, of all places, is kind of the place where piano tuners go and learn. Wow. Um, the mecca of... Uh, the mecca piano. of piano tuning <laughs> and restoration um, and French polishing. Um, and uh, and I, I just didn't fancy it, so... I don't, yeah. <laughs> that's interesting. Well, maybe it's something for future you to delve into. Maybe, yeah. Maybe. But, I, but I found teaching now, and that's that's very much where I feel... Uh, like I've landed on my feet, really, because I love it, and it's it's um, it's always been sort of running slightly alongside what I did um, in a professional way, anyway. Mm. Um, but to kind of you know um, build it more into my my means of making a living has been fantastic. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. That wasn't in Hitchin by any chance, was it? The, where the piano tuner was? No, he no. was in he was in. I think he was in like East Finchley or oh, okay. somewhere like that, or, or, or maybe Muswell Hill. Maybe it might have been there. Yeah, I saw when I was living in Hitchin during lockdown. Uh, they probably shouldn't have been doing it in lockdown, but they were <laughs> doing exactly what you were saying. They were hoisting this big crane out of the side of the building and lifting the pianos up. I've never seen it. Yeah, but that's it, what he did. Yeah, he had this. He had this window that could sort of like uh, you know just just kind of part, and then and and it could reach down onto the street. 
and and pick these pianos up and he had them sort of upside down it was amazing yeah yeah actually, yeah, yeah really i i had even more appreciation for what they did actually because that i knew of them when they used to come into theaters and sometimes tune pianos there and things like that and obviously just you know um because it's a very well-known trade i suppose particularly amongst musicians and um yeah so i got in touch with this guy and he was yeah he was amazing he was a really amazing guy he was an austrian guy and he had lots of really just interesting philosophy i, I really learned a lot about the meaning of life. I didn't learn anything about piano tuning, but That's I learned right. a lot, a lot about philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> what an interesting yeah. guy! I need to get him on the podcast. He yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He's probably too busy though. He's too yeah, busy to he, teach me piano tuning. I need so. to get him in to tune a piano somewhere. <laughs> I'll just buy a really bad one. Yeah. Um, now, take me back. Um, we'll come back to teaching uh, a little bit later on the podcast. You spent a, a number of years in musical theatre and and at, straight acting as well. No, not really. No. I, I did a couple of workshops and readings of things, but, okay. but but the bulk of my work in performance was was musical theatre, really. Yeah. Okay. When you're an audience member and you watch uh, other actors on the stage in the West End, it's very easy to think that they have had this easy, polished uh, career from stagecoach to this to that to the other. What was your upbringing like in terms of musical theatre? Was it easily accessible where you lived or was it um, something that you could see on maybe the telly, but you'd didn't have it around you what was it like yeah i mean i, I was really fortunate really I, I grew up in york um and there is an amazing still today actually i'm in fact i'm patron of an amateur dramatic society in york even now um and there is an amazing set network of opportunities for young people that want to engage in that um and, and a sort of a, i suppose a set of people who are running these operations that are incredibly passionate about providing these opportunities i got involved in a school production of les mis um i think i was in about year eight or year nine and um, I played Gavroche. Um, had the, I hadn't really had much access, I suppose, to to musical things like that up until that point. I'd played the violin a bit as a kid, and I'd been in a couple of choirs at primary school and, and little things like that. Um, but this was kind of the first time I'd sort of been really in a musical. Um, and I just had the absolute time of my life. And um, it was actually my nan who found an article in the in the York press um, where there was a, an amateur society that was sort of recruiting for another um, production of Les Mis that was going to be at the Grand Opera House in York. Um, and it was kind of this, you know, really, really exciting opportunity and stuff. And, and actually weird, I seem to remember I'd got the, I'd got like the time and the date wrong. And I turned up at York St. John University for an audition and missed it. Um, oh. but, but actually I got in contact with these people and they did still accommodate me and, 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 and put me in. And that, at that time it was led by, uh, the guy who ran the company was, was a guy called Bev Jones, who's, who's sadly uh, since died. Um, and he, he taught me everything, really, um, at that point about uh, just um, stagecraft and how to use your voice and how to communicate with other people and how to speak clearly and all of these kind of um, sort of fundamental skills. Um, and, um, and yeah, I, I spent a couple of years uh, in amateur dramatics, never thinking, actually, that... Uh, it would be a career choice. It would be something that I was going to do professionally. Um, and because what I sort of wanted to do really was, um, I wanted to be a paramedic. That was what I'd sort of had, had a view to doing. My grandfather had been an ambulance driver and, and um, you know, I just thought uh, as a young person, it just seemed something sort of very meaningful and uh, stable and also varied about that. I think on a sort of subconscious level, I think I recognised how exciting that would be. Mm. Um, and... Um, and so, yeah, so I was doing a lot of that. And then and it, well, to the point where actually when I was at secondary school, um, I actually failed drama. I took drama at GCSE okay. um, because I, I missed one of my assessments because I thought, well, I'm never going to be an actor. So um, I, and I, I'd been scheduled to go to, for an interview at York College for a course called Uniformed Public Services, okay. um, which was kind of all part of the road towards 
joining the ambulance service yeah, of course, in some way. Right. I'm with you. Um, and um, and so so I went and did that, and I did a two year course in uniform public services, which I, I had the time of my life. I, I didn't I didn't love school actually. Um, I, I went to a school that at the time it didn't feel particularly aspirational. Um, there, there were sort of a few things happening there that have since changed. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and the institution is, is totally different. You know what it's like, you know, the people make the place and totally. I'm not, I'm not laying any blame on any teachers or anything, you know, particularly if they're listening. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, when there's a big shake up, the, I, I, funny enough, when I started my PGCE, um, I actually went back onto the website of that school to sort of see mm. how it fit with, with the terminology that we'd use in terms of academies and all, all of that sort of stuff. Mm. And I didn't recognize anyone on, on the sort of the payroll, if you like. Um, so I, I imagine that it's very, very different now. When I got to York College, it totally opened my world really really, because I, 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 it felt like a fresh start. It felt like a fresh start where I could make some new friends. Mm. And I was in New York and, and, you know, I could stay with my nan a bit and, and be involved in all these amateur dramatics things. And, and it was around the sort of time in my life where I'd learned to drive. So I sort of suddenly found independence and totally. all of that stuff. And it was amazing. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and, and beyond that, I, um, I didn't get into university to do paramedic science because my GCSEs had been fairly subpar, really. Cool. Um, and so I sort of took a year out and Bev Jones, the guy who ran the Amateur Dramatic Society, said to me, well, you know, you should apply for drama school and see how you get on. He'd had a son uh, that, that had uh, that previously been an actor and now works as a producer. Um, and uh, and he'd been to Guildford and, and he'd been in West End shows and, and followed a fairly similar path, I suppose, to what I maybe had in mind. Um, and I just kind of went, you know, went and auditioned. And, and you know, well, well, I filled in the, the long form and sent the full length photo of myself with a check for like 35 quid and all, all mm -hmm. that stuff that you do. Um, and throughout all this, I, I need to add that my parents were incredibly supportive of everything that I did. They loved coming to watch, coming to see, see me in shows in York and things like that. And when I got into to, to drama school, you know, from what I remember, their response was, well, you've got to go. You know, you've got to take this opportunity. Um, and so I kind of landed at GSA on a bit of a whim, it felt like, um, you know, off the back of doing Amdram and stuff. But I'd learned so much from engaging in those opportunities that it, it gave me everything that I needed to sort of get there. Now, would you feel, well, firstly, what an incredible set of turns, <laughs> because I had no idea about the paramedic side at all. Um, and also very honest of you about how you, you found school. So that's, it's good to hear because sometimes people see somebody that's done the end product, you know, performing on the West End and they think, oh, everything's been lovely on the on their pathway. Would you say then, as it wasn't this massive thing in your mind for many, many years, you were actually a little bit more relaxed in terms of when you came to the auditions or was it still quite a pressurized situation? Um, I think, I think to be honest, there was a bit of ignorance, I think, okay. because it was sort of something that I was doing on a bit of a whim in some way. I mean, I worked very hard for my mm. auditions and stuff and it was a big deal for me to kind of get on a train. And I, I in fact, I don't really remember that much about about doing it. I remember that I sort of went on my own, but I, I had to get a train down to London and then go through, navigate through London to get to Waterloo to then get down to Guildford and, uh, and all that sort of stuff. And it was just stuff that I hadn't done before. Yeah. Um, and the first audition is um, fair. It, it feels like uh, you're really going around the houses because I, I traveled all that way and you present a song and a monologue and then you leave. Um, and they will phone you or, or send you, I can't remember, probably a phone call um, to say, we'd like to come back and we're sort of engaged in this full weekend of activities um, where they they get you to do poetry reading and singing songs as in a group setting and also solo numbers as well. Um, they'll teach you some dance, you do an acting workshop, sort of team building type stuff because they want to sort of see how you are as an ensemble 
ensemble member and all that stuff. I think a lot of that stuff's been knocked on the head now, probably for cost, because I think it probably cost them a lot of money, actually, to host a weekend full of recalls. Yeah. Um, considering that probably about about 85% of the people they would would be turned away after yeah. that weekend as well. I had been down to London. I'd seen um, a couple of things in the West End. Um, I'd been to see Chitty Chitty Bang Bang um, as a year seven on a school trip. And then I went back with my family to see that. But actually, really, um, an, another um, thing that I should mention in, in, in all of this, in fact, I absolutely must mention, um, is that my my nan took me to see Phantom of the Opera when I was 16. Um, and... Um, and, it, and it, Really, that was around the time when I was at York College, I seem to remember, um, and I was uh, studying public services and things like that. And really, that was the spark that ignited the flame, really. Um, was it, 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 It's no exaggeration, really, to say that it, it changed my life, really, seeing that show, because f- all of a sudden I kind of had this kind of role model and this production that just changed my, you know, changed my whole perception of what, you know what I thought I've sort of wanted, and and um, and it kind of gave me a goal. You know, it gave me something to go. Wow, that 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 is amazing. What that guy has just done playing the Phantom is f- like nothing I'd ever experienced. And so it really motivated me and inspired me. And I, I you know, I became totally uh, enamored with it to the point where my nan actually booked for us to go again. Actually, in, wow. in in a few months' time, and it was a big thing for her as well. You mm. know. Um, to, to sort of take me down and uh, you know and, and she just booked it all booked all the tickets and all of that sort of stuff um it was it was it was brilliant but back to the whole gsa thing i mean there's a, there's a couple of things to to say there as well that um they said to you they said to to, to us um, when you come back for the recall we want you to have a dance solo prepared um now i i think to say that i had two left feet particularly at this point would be um would be something of a compliment really <laughs> given my sort of uh, my, my my abilities at that time and they, but they said, oh, don't worry about it. Nobody ever does the dance solo. Nobody ever does it. It's just something you have to have in your back pocket. Oh, well, yeah. that weekend, I was the one person who had to do it. Oh, um, and at the man. time, I was in an amateur production of Crazy For You. So I had this kind of like tap solo that I was doing. It, was, it wasn't very good. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was, and I had to go in this room with the, like, the full panel of all the people that had been kind of assessing us in all the different departments. I could sort of see them writing and, and all that sort of stuff. And, um, and then beyond that, they make a cut and they say to about 80, 85% of the people, okay, you're done for today. And then there's a few people that we want to see for, for an interview. Um, I did do an interview. <laughs> One of the first things I said was, if we offered you a place, you would need to have some dance lessons between now and when you come. Um, uh, uh, fair point. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fair. Um, and, um, uh, and and anyway, um, I didn't know that I, I, could, I, I could make no... Um, assumption really based on that conversation um, but lo and behold they did offer me a place but the the head of the school at the time um who i won't name <laughs> did say to me um i very nearly didn't accept you um what he didn't do was then follow up and say i'm really glad that i did <laughs> Just <left laughs> which which would have been great said, i nearly didn't take you <laughs> great um so so it left me feeling as a first year that uh, whether, whether or not my, my place was worthy but um but yeah and then th- those three years were uh, incredible um what was your course called was it a musical theater course yeah overall it was yeah. musical theater yeah so it's a bachelor of arts in in musical theater and at guildford is it is it all musical theater or are there people that major in dance alone or um there were three subjects when i was there okay. um there was acting mm-hmm. musical theater and production so okay. um so you, you had to kind of be one of those three things really and actually to be honest um the, the acting course and the musical theater course in the first year when i was there 
um, were very very similar. Um, right. In that you know uh, you you you, mer- you merged for a lot of classes and things, groups singing and and uh, a lot of dance classes and things like that. You were all together actually for a lot of those things based on based on the, the set, <laughs> which I was at the bottom. <laughs> um, and um, and yeah, and then it started to sort of get a little bit more varied and things like that um, into the second year. But it is different now. Oh. Um, it's 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 more closely affiliated with the University of Surrey. Um, they've got things like an acting musician course there. I think or even that might have existed for a while and has maybe been knocked on the head since I, I can't remember but um but yeah so it was three main subjects whatever it is now i'm not sure but um there were three main subjects acting musical theater and production the production course was phenomenal actually and for people that wanted to work in stage management or particular areas um had such a great opportunity because they had amazing workshops and they did things like costume making and they they worked as part of the stage management and crew and sound and lighting for all the productions um and it was really awesome yeah and it was a, it was a really uh, integrated community of people as well and actually even now um, you know when I sort of meet people that you know maybe we're just leaving third year as I was coming up you know you'd sort of heard of each other and mm-hmm. you know um, I, I'm in a singing group now and we go off well actually we haven't done this since Covid actually but there was a time when we were going off on ships quite a lot and, and things like that and um, you know they, they were often sort of from the from the fairly widely cast net of people from GSA um, and and actually um this is this might sound a little bit controversial really and i i, I hope i'm not um out of line saying this but it felt like when i was at gsa and in the f- few years prior gsa had a bit of a brand you know um and and I, and I say that on the basis of i used to meet other people that had been to gsa within those kind of years that i talk about and it felt like you had a similar set of skills mm. you were quite similar in terms of your character and personality um, and there were just other things as well that, that just seemed to fit. Um, and I think it is different now, actually. Um, but there was there was something quite empowering about that, that like I, it, it gave you people. an identity. Yeah. yeah, it gave you yeah. a sense of identity as well when you were leaving. Um, that on the bottom of your CV, it would say Guildford School of Acting and, and you know, and, and, and it almost felt like uh, casting directors and other creatives sort of almost knew what to expect a little bit. Yeah. You know? um, and it, I think, was very reliable for them as well. Have you worked with many people that you were on the course with um, at Guildford since then? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I Oh, yeah, yeah. So actually, when I went into Les Mis, there were three of us from our year group uh, who went into that. Um, one guy called Michael, who was just finished in Wicked, um, and another girl called Jessamy, who's now in Hollyoaks. Um, so, yeah, so the three of us uh, graduated into Les Mis um, at the same time. And then... I don't think so. I don't think there's been anybody that's been in my year group, but there have been people that have been in like the year below or yeah. year above or, or, you know, things like that. That happens a lot. Um, yeah. Or, or there's been workshops and odd, odd situations where I might have been, but not not really, not a whole lot. And with you, it sounds like a, a very healthy community of people that you can sort of relate to as well. Would you say that the course that you were on is quite or was quite geared up towards doing well in the industry? Um the reason I ask it is that um, having been on a, a music course myself, there's sometimes a lot of development, but it's sort of a personal development that you can go and find yourself as a musician or as an artist. Whereas um, things like production or musical theatre, there are jobs to be had out there rather than you having to create your own. Obviously, I know and we will come on to some stuff that you have and where you have created uh, some of your own with other people, but... Uh, it it sounds like it's geared up quite well to actually make you successful within in the industry. Is that? True? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I, I think what they did really well um, was kind of setting up um, like 
setting up audition scenarios and, mm. and things like that that would kind of give you a sense of what would be expected upon the first encounter with the casting team or things like that. Um, and actually what they, they had a, a strong focus on uh, at GSA was your folder of repertoire, um, which... Uh, which was which is absolutely your toolkit. It's what you. It's your pitch, really. Mm-hmm. It's your dragons mm-hmm. them pitch. Yeah. Um, when you turn up with you, with your stuff, that it has to kind of present you as an artist in the best possible way, um, but also have the flexibility to be you know uh, adapted to fit different scenarios and things like that. Um, so yeah, I mean the, the the I I felt incredibly well, um, sort of. Uh, what's the word? I felt like they they accommodated us incredibly well um, all the way through the training. Um, and I know that everybody has a very different experience. There were some there were some people that were on my course that would speak very differently about their personal experience. But mine was um, uh, uh, very much an experience of of being nurtured and being mentored and being guided and and being treated with respect. Um, and and also because um, when it gets to third year, when you do your productions, it was very much the case um that agents came and saw you in shows and if they wanted to meet with you you know with with a view to you know um and and that was a real really interesting turning point because they invite the agents in largely and they do say you know if there's one in particular you know send them an email and see if they'll, they'll come i got very lucky because i was in legally blonde um, I mean, I must admit, when I was, I didn't know anything about Legally Blonde when I was actually casting it. And over the summer, between second and third year, we got the casting through, and I, I got, I was, you know, noticed that I'd been casting Legally Blonde, and I was, I was absolutely livid because I thought I, I want to be a serious actor. You know? Oh, I see. Oh. It, and, and I was so wrong in my judgment. I mean, I was so stupid because. Legally Blonde's amazing. It's a really good show. Um, and um, and I, I was given an absolutely golden opportunity. But for that summer, I thought, because they were doing Rent as well, I thought, you know, I see myself in Rent, something really tackle some yeah, real yeah. issues, man. You know, like, I was like, that's that's what I wanted. Um, I'm and, a big uh, fan of Legally Blonde. I, we, we did it when I was at Nutsford. I, I MD'd it. Ah. And it was such good fun. I, I'm a big fan of the music. Great it's, score. Yeah, it's a great score, but also dramatically, it's structurally really sound. It's got mm. real integrity and heart. It's brilliant. It's such a good adaptation. Um, and actually, when I got into rehearsals, I, I just had the time of my life. Mm-hmm. And, and not only was it the first show of the academic term, it, we were also, I believe, the first drama school to do Legally Blonde. So uh-huh. it attracted a lot of attention from, you know, casting people and agents and all that sort of stuff. Um, and, um, and everybody just about... Um, got agent representation that was in it, which was extraordinary. Really, it was. I mean, and, and actually, that was testament, I think, to how the creatives at GSA had had facilitated everybody's needs really in a way that kind of meant that everybody had their opportunity to, you know, to to showcase themselves and their skills and and all of that sort of stuff. I got signed with an agent. Um, I had several meetings, um, and I signed with an agent who um, is is. Um, well known, very well known in the industry, um, and really um, set me off straight away um, uh, with auditions. I mean, I, I, I went as quickly as I had a meeting with him on Tuesday, um, and 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 signed with him on that day. Um, he, he sort of thrust the paper in front of me, really, and 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 said, "Look, you know, is this the type of office you want to you want to be?" You know, and I, I you know, um, I suppose quite naively, really, just signed the dotted line and kind of went, "Yeah, fine." He phoned me on Wednesday and said he got an audition on Thursday, um, and it was for Shrek. Um, oh right, yeah. So, um, from then it was kind of like hit the ground running, really, and and I guess the reason that that's a bit of a turning point is because 
Guildford invite these agents in and then they, I suppose, guide you through, um, you know, agents didn't, I don't think contacted us directly. I think they maybe contacted the school and the school got us to contact them for obviously for safeguarding and all that mm, sort of stuff. Mm. But then once you'd kind of signed, it was kind of like, well, they've given you the wings to fly now. You know, it's kind of like now is your time to go and, and you know, get a job, hopefully, before you um, before you graduate, you know. So that was the start of your second year. That was you the start of my third year. The start of your third year. Yeah. You were signed. And then how did it go with Shrek? Well, Shrek, I, I didn't get recalled for, actually, okay. um, which was gutting because I thought I'd be a cracking Princess Fiona. Um, <laughs> but um, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I did about, I think it was like 33 auditions before I got a job. Um, and it, it was it was a lot, you know. What was the length of time that was across? Uh, that was between, that would have been between about the end of October and around the beginning of April. Wow, that's an in so six intense. months. Yeah. Intense. Yeah. Now so I'm just gonna reverse for one second. You yeah. um you talked about uh Guildford really mentoring you, giving you great guidance all the way through. And I think that's also partly sometimes due to how you approach the course itself. I found um I went to the junior RNCM before going to the RNCM. And I found that you had sort of two different people that had carried on. You either had people that felt like they already knew what they needed to do and they didn't listen to the advice. So they thought there was no, no advice that they could possibly hear. <laughs> you then had the other side, which I was more on in that I was feeling quite anxious that I felt as if I already should know some of these things because I've been around there for so long. So I didn't always ask the questions. But you approaching Guildford... And it had been a, a complete change in career path for you from the paramedic side to that. Do you feel that you were actually quite open to being guided and advised what to do, including your agent? Yeah, I, th I think so. Um, I mean, certainly when I was at GSA, I mean, um, I the, the 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 lads that I was on my course with, um, I, I'm still we're still in a WhatsApp group, um, still great friends with today, um, many of which. Um, came from very sort of similar kind of uh, very modest ordinary sort of working um, like working in Amdram sort of stuff um, kind of background um, if that makes sense mm -hmm. and so we had a lot of things in common um, and we became friends really quickly and it, it, I think it, what it did was it, it created this culture where you didn't really feel particularly judged a lot of the time which Brilliant. is which is so important um, and it felt like a, a pretty safe space and, and again that's only my personal experience I know that people would have had it differently in, in different year groups or whatever it might have been mm. um, so what it meant was you didn't feel stupid if you if you were asking questions because that that is often the thing that stops you yes. from asking things that you need totally. to know is the yeah. fear of being kind of judged or, or or you know felt in some way kind of inadequate um and then and then yeah i, I suppose when when it um, went beyond the pale of of gsa um yeah i i mean i was I wouldn't. I wouldn't say I, I was mentored, but I was. I was almost managed by the agent that I signed with, um, to, to to the point where um, it, it used to it used to terrify me a bit when he when he used to phone and um, he he um, did lots of amazing things for me actually, uh, and I'm I'm you know incredibly grateful for all of those things, um, but there there were times when you know. I'd sort of be in Tesco and uh, and and <laughs> I'd see him phoning, and I, d I didn't have a notebook to write all the details down, and I felt like, oh god, you know, I should I should have had a notebook. What was I doing? At all times, but yeah. but he 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 sort of worked at such a pace um, 
that was kind of I think testament to the success of a lot of his clients really that he you know he he um, had very very high standards and expected a lot of his clients but but at the same time you know I have to say you know was um was quite nurturing a lot of the time as well whenever it was required it, it, it you know things did change in in um, my circumstances and his I, I, I would say um, a little bit later down the line and, and I needed something different really from from agent representation um, more really to accommodate um, less focus on just being an actor mm. um, and really because of the 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 high standard and the pace in which um, he worked it didn't seem fair that someone like me would take up a space on his books for somebody that might be a little bit more keen, a little bit more eager. I, I wanted a break. I wanted a bit of time away. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to go and sort of do some things of my own and and, and some other stuff, but with a view long term to moving up north, which is now what, what I've sort of done. Um, and I I have an agent now um, who uh, is is incredibly um, accommodating of um, my situation teaching and, and doing things like that but also whenever the opportunity arises to like I, I went back to phantom a couple of weeks ago uh, because they were a little bit short on on phantoms um because they're going through a bit of a transitional period they, they deal with that amazingly um every so often they'll say no pressure but somebody's asked after you you would be interested in this and it's often a no but there's no bearing on it um and every time you know i'd phone they're, they're just wonderful they're, they're absolutely amazing um and uh, yeah so so it's it's, it's a very different um vibe you know it's very mm. different feeling different culture um of and it's been really quite um i suppose enriching for me to have had um the experience of working with two different sort of agents and management representation to see to see how how things work but um but yeah uh, the, the 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 people that i'm represented by now are, are absolutely amazing and and, and uh, are fantastic so yeah I'm so very pleased for you because yeah. it, that can be a really tough thing when you're questioning is it me is it them is it the industry it's it's a hard it's a hard thing to be involved in well yeah because they've got to make a living as well exactly you know? so yeah. so it's it, it's it's very it's a very privileged position really i suppose um but i guess they've got They've got people on their books that that are maybe putting more focus on it more full time, mm. and will generate you know, but also they will take up more of their time. So I I don't take up much of their time really because the it's, it's kind of limited now. I think really to when you know if, if on the odd occasion Phantom might ask me to go back or there might be the odd inquiry for something you know. Mm. Um, so so yes, it works works very well both ways, which is how it should be. I love it. Yeah. Take me back now. Um, I'm going to reverse again. So you've you've had a few twists and turns. Um, you were unhappy about Legally Blonde until it started. <laughs> and then that was amazing because loads of people got representation from it. You then got your agent, amazing, you're on a high. You then got a period of six months of 33 auditions. How were you mentally as you were going through these and getting rejections at that time? Uh, well, it's, it, to be honest, it's quite hard to remember. But I, I think that um, I knew that getting no's was just it's just part and parcel of it you know and you you learn very quickly to just kind of go well onwards and upwards and actually to be honest a lot of the feedback that people get when it, when it comes to rejections and things like that um if it's if it's uh, the case that they say you turned up and you just weren't good enough mm. that's really that can be really hard to take um and that does happen from time to time you know there, there are some casting directors that will be very pleased to get, to send that feedback to your agent <laughs> <laughs> thanks um you know uh, but if it's the case that it's like we're we're just 
you didn't match up with this person or um, something's not quite right mm. or, you, you know, there, there could just be something very out of your control that you just learn to just go, oh, well, I can't do anything about that. And, I'll, you know, on you go. But I, I have to say, I always, always hated auditioning. It was the thing that I loathed the most about being an actor. Um, I, I, I found it um, incredibly stressful. Um, I found it, it used to really wind me up that, you know, um, I, I could like devote eight weeks of my life to sort of going in for auditions, um, you know, having to sort of like irritate employers by saying, I can't come into work today and mm. I've got another show, you know, whatever it was, or I'm to phone in sick or do, do all those kind of things that felt a little bit um, devious. Mm. Um, to get to like the final round and then say, oh, um, you're not quite tall enough. And you kind of go... <sighs> But surely that was a round one thing. Yeah, you, know? you could have seen that on the piece of paper yeah. before I walked in the room. Yeah, that, that bit where it says height. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that, so that, that I really, really found frustrating. And, and, but not only that, um, it, it was the, the, the sheer amount of material that they send, you know, the, the sheer amount of material that they give to you to learn. And then they'll say, they'll say, oh, we're sending you three scenes and two songs. Can you have it learned by Thursday? And they'd turn up and they'd hear maybe twenty percent of it. So you've spent all that time putting you know. in the graft. Yeah, and mm. I and, and it, it's funny because I remember having a conversation with my dad. Um, my dad's a joiner, um, and um, he has. To, I mean, he he works incredibly hard. My dad. I mean, he works absolutely round the clock um, to get gates out. He makes timber gates. That's what he does. Okay. Um, and he has to spend a lot of his time going around and measuring jobs up. So he'll, he'll measure someone's driveway um, and then he'll sort of put a quote in. He'll spend a lot of time, you know, sort of writing down like the cost of all the materials and the labour and, and giving them expectations as to when they can receive it and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and then sometimes he might just never hear back, you know, mm. from, from a job, you know. And I said, well, it would be a little bit like you going out and measuring a job and doing all that work, you know, doing your quotes and all that sort of stuff. And then coming back to you and saying, um, we'd like you to, we'd like you to come back next week, but we'd like you to measure the job in exactly the same way that you did. But this time we'd like you to maybe, um, drop a little sketch of exactly how you're going to do it. And all that sort of thing. Because yeah, okay, right, cool. Yeah. And then, and then the week after that, you then go back again and it's the same thing, you know, uh, and then the week after that, they want you to design it from the back of the driveway. And, you know, do you know what I mean? And I sort of had, I described it in that way. Um, and I sort of said, imagine you've done that like eight or nine times and you've given up your Tuesday evening and you've gone out to do it. You've missed football a couple of times or whatever it is. Mm. And then they say, oh, actually, no, we're going to go with someone else. It, it would be like that, uh, like twice, thrice weekly. Um, yeah. And, it, and it, it does start to, to weigh you down. Um, and, um, and yeah, so... It, that 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 was the thing about auditioning that was really really hard to take. But once you get a job, and if it's a year contract in something, in my mind I went, oh, that's a year I'd have to audition. Yes, <laughs> you know, yeah, so course. I'd have to audition now for a year. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that. Now, um, what was your first uh, audition that went successfully? What was what was your well, first gig? My the first audition that went successfully was for the UK tour of Annie Get You Gun. Um, and uh, it was to understudy Jason Donovan, which I was like, I could I could ring my mum and cool. say I'm going to be understudying Jason Donovan, but um, it, it didn't really work out because I was I was auditioning for Les Mis at the same time. Okay, um, and my agent at the time said, Look, you know, I think it's up to you, but you know, Les Mis is looking quite hopeful. Mm. We can sort of stall that for a bit um, and see, you know, see see how that goes. And, and lo and behold, I did my final for Les Mis and um, and, and I got cast in that, which was just like 
the dream, you know, considering yeah. that that was really where it all started. Yeah. Playing Gavroche at school and then doing it in York and all of that sort of stuff. Um, it, it, I just, I couldn't say no. And I had an amazing job because I, I played Fui in the ensemble. Um, I had lots of things to do there, but then um, I would play Andreas at some performances um, when in the case of illness or holiday or things like mm. that. Um, and sometimes I played the bishop as well. That was another sort of little quirk in the job, which was quite nice. And so, it, and, and it, it was absolutely just the, the best apprenticeship really because you work with just a, such a wide plethora of amazing people um which i did you know and, and the year that i was there the, the the actors that were in it um were absolutely amazing and, and actually to this day um I, I don't mind saying this uh sort of publicly really that the, the best actor i've ever worked with um it was an actor called tom eden who who played Tenardier, um and he'd been nominated previously for a tony award uh, for a part he played on Broadway where he actually I don't think he actually had any lines um, yeah. he, he was in One Man Two Governors and, and he, he played Alfie who's the sort of waiter who gets smacked with cricket bats and thrown downstairs and this he had this very physical very incredible talent for physical not just physical comedy but comedy overall um, but but he, the way that he played that role um, and catered to its comedic needs whilst also capturing the the real sort of dark desperate nature of the character was amazing and um and and you know uh to, to this day uh, I, I if if anybody ever asks me who's the best person you've ever worked with it, it's it's undoubtedly him um so but he wasn't the only person in that cast who was also it taught me an awful lot um you know people that i'd watched in shows growing up in fact the first time i ever saw les mis the guy who was playing the, the guy who's playing javert when i was in it I played Andreas the first time I'd seen it. Um, it was an actor called David Thaxton. And um, again, like to work with him was incredible. Um, and to see his process and his commitment to his work. And I remember I used to be coming down the stairs often when he'd just done the Javert suicide. And he used to walk up the stairs, an absolute mess with kind of a shoulder against the wall, kind of walking up the stairs with his shoulder lit, lit against it because he was just absolutely exhausted by the whole thing. And on a nightly basis, he used to do, well, eight times a week, you know, sometimes twice a day and uh, never, ever let the ball drop. Um, so, so yeah, so that, that was, that was lame is that was the first, that was, it wasn't the first successful audition per se, but it was the first, first job that I went on to do. Incredible. That is an amazing experience to have. And you mentioned having lots of different roles within lame is, Talk me through your process when you know that at the quite last minute you might need to change and do somebody else's role because of sickness. How do you maintain all of these different parts mentally and then be able to step in last minute? Repetition, really. Mm. Um, I mean, in the case of Andreas, um, as it turned out, I, I did go on very last minute. The first time I ever did it, um, and I hadn't had a full set of rehearsals for it, um, but it, it just so happened that... The uh, the chap playing Andreas at the time just just got stuck on a train, you know, and these things happen. Yeah. Um, and so um, and 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 really, what was unfortunate for for him was that he had no indication really of how long it was going to be before the train got moving. Mm. Um, so they just said, look, you know, and and, and actually, um, they turned to myself and uh, the other Andreas cover. Both of us were new, um, and said, uh, you know, can can one of you do it? And and it, it, you know, it was me. And um, uh, and, and to be honest, I'd throughout the whole process throughout the whole re rehearsal process um i thought this could ha this could be a possibility so i just made myself ready for it every time that i was learning my own ensemble play if i ever got a minute just writing down the you know what you would call the track if you like of of, of Andreas, um and making sure that i kind of knew what i was doing when i mean i got so many things completely wrong <laughs> uh, there were there were moments where i was i was 
completely not in the right place and all of that sort of stuff. Um, but not so that anybody would notice. And yeah. and I think, you know, in that case, your professional instincts just kick in a bit. Um, and you just you just take in the moment and you just kind of go, well, um, I know I know the lines. I know when to say them. And I know when I have to come in. Um, I know when I have to en- enter an exit. Um, everything else, I'm just going to have to, you know, th- there are ways of communicating with your fellow actors without saying, I, I don't know what comes next, where they can go, he doesn't know what comes next and, and they can guide you guide you. you yeah yeah team yeah effort. yeah and that's that's very much what what happened and um I, I don't really remember much about that night um because it was just it was just an absolute whirlwind but i'll tell you who comes into their own in situations like that dressers they they mm. are absolutely the people that are make or break for you in that situation um the the Angeras dresser at that time um was a lady called zoe osborne who uh just completely she'd be literally waiting in the wing and she would go right come with me because what people don't often realize is it's not just the onstage stuff that's that's you know you don't you don't just come off stage and into this magical world of oh well I'm all right now for 20 yeah. minutes have a bruise it's like back, yeah. yeah exactly yeah it's like well where do I go now you know mm. uh, what 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 do I put on you know there are all these different things so um so yeah so th- that that is when the dressers absolutely uh come into their own because they they you know um they they end up looking after you really yeah. or do it helping you with all the stuff and actually they literally will position you right where you need to enter off you, off you go. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. It did feel like that. Yeah. So. so, so during rehearsals, would you have them, or do you have space in, in rehearsal spaces to actually have them around you, or are they always watching, noting down, and then it's only in the moment that they're able to to do that? Well, you, you don't meet them really to get into the theatre. Actually, really? yeah. So it's it's kind of you know if I, if I remember rightly, um, because when when um a West End show has been running for for a long time, like Les Mis has, mm. um, there's no like tech week you know it's kind of you come in for a day to do some tech in um you know go through like things like oh in fact actually at lame is we rehearsed on stage so we had for, for the most part so we had things like the revolve and the, the barricade and all that sort of stuff um but then there's kind of a day where it's kind of like well this is your dress rehearsal day um and that's you know that's when you when you meet the dresses because of course they're working in the show in the evening with the previous cast so so there's yeah. this there's this takeover period where it, the, the the show doesn't stop you know the, the the previous cast will finish on saturday night there'll be a day off on sunday and then on the following monday the new current cast going on do a dress rehearsal and that's really when you when you kind of meet the dressers and get into your, you know get into your dressing rooms and things like that because you're literally going into the place of somebody who is sat there in the evening so you know so so it, it happens like that really and when the cast changes my friend's teching wicked at the moment they've just had their cast change yeah is that ev- is everybody new, or is there, is there a bit of a bleed over? No, no, they'll they'll usually be a good. Well, <laughs> depends really. Depends on depends on the circumstances. I mean, some shows. I mean, really, um, the kind of almost directly a year after theatres reopened, a lot of people stayed in shows because you know they'd had a had a couple of years of really you know and, and yeah you know when you land in these jobs that the it feels like a really fortunate position to be in, um, so. So in that case, not many jobs become available. Um, but there, there are. It's often the case that actors have either chosen to leave, um, or the company have said, you know, thank you for your work, but we're ready to find someone else now. And and uh, you know, you only ever take take a contract on on the assumption that you're going to be there for a year. Um, so um, so yeah, that's that's kind of how it goes. <laughs> now you mentioned Lamez seeing it as a uh, as a young person. A bit sorry, being in it as a young person to then having it professionally part of your life. You've also mentioned Phantom as you saw it with your nan. Were you 16, 17? Yeah, yeah, 16, yeah. 
tell me what it's like to then go on stage and be the Phantom. Well, I suppose that came a few years later because um, I've done Phantom twice. So I did it in oh, two. Wow. I left Les Mis to go into Phantom in 2015, where I covered Raoul, um, and that's where I met my wife. She was in the show, um, and uh, and she she at the time was in the corps de ballet. Uh, she's a classical ballet dancer um, and covering Meg. And then I left, and she took over the role of Meg full time. Um, and it, it was it was absolutely surreal. I have to be honest, um, because there I am now going to work through the stage door where I stood and waited after the show to meet these people that had been in it. What a full circle moment. I know, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I, I was covering Raoul and that was amazing. And um, uh, the 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 fans of the opera, um, when when I did it the first time, um, still was still very much the... I have to be very careful what I say here, really, but it was still very much... Um, the original production with original creatives involved and there were people that were in the cast who had been in it for a, for a very long time. Um, when COVID struck, um, the, the producers took the decision that for, for lots of different reasons, many of which I don't know um, and I wouldn't like to speculate on, they sort of closed the show indefinitely is what they said. Um, and then they sort of reopened it with a kind of reimagined version of... Um, of, of a few things and that included um, a few safety things they automated a lot of things like trap doors and things that were once because when I was there the first time they were all you sort of like human controlled so if you were on a trap door there'd be two two people underneath it holding the trap door closed and at the right moment they would just let go of it and it would kind of land on this stack of tires I mean it was it was ludicrous that this was happening really now um, but it was it was just the way that it the way it was and actually yeah. there were a few things in the the way that the bridge moved and things um that that meant that that actually if if it had opened today wouldn't have met the requirements actually for sort of a few health and safety things so, yeah. so they had to change that okay. you know they had to make a few changes there um and uh, they had to, and, and that had a bit of a knock-on effect with how a few things worked sort of aesthetically um and things like that as far as i understand and then there were a couple of things like they um sh uh, shrunk the band down a bit um the um you know there, there were just all sorts of things um and and what that meant was um a lot of people who had worked in the building for a long time um when were sort of no longer working there and and it was it was a very sort of um i suppose uh a new sort of um a new version of of the show really mm. um, in in lots of different ways in terms of how uh, how it was staffed and how it was um cast and uh, and and all of that sort of stuff it, it very much had a, a different set of people looking after it um and so that's and this is when i went into it a second time um, and i had the absolute amazing fortune that time to do the job I was doing before covering Raoul, but I also had the addition of covering the Phantom as well, which was just like unreal. I mean, um, the uh, the 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 moment where you go and get your head scanned because they make the prosthetics and the mask to fit your head oh, is wow. like is just amazing. Uh, so some, I mean, I, I can't back this up with anything, but somebody did tell me that uh, if you've played the Phantom on either on on either the West End or on Broadway you're in a group of people smaller than that of of the collective group of people that have been to the International Space Station. Um, so apparently, but as I say, don't quote me on that because that is very much secondhand. We'll go for it. Sounds yeah, why great. Not? Yeah. Sounds great. <laughs> that could yeah. be a headline for the video. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, so, so yeah, so, you know, not obviously in between that, there was a, there was a, a, a bunch of things that... Um, that I did, but uh, yeah, but that that felt like full circle. Um, not only because um, I'd seen the show with my nan, I'd met my wife there the first time, but I also knew in that year that 
I'm ready to take a bit of a step back and make some changes. So it felt like it was a real high to end on, um, to be able to play uh, the Phantom and, and actually amidst that, um, be part of things like uh, West End Live, for instance, where there were like three Phantoms, three of us that sang. It was supposed to be four of us um, because Killian Donnelly, who was playing the Phantom at the time, was was due to be involved. Um, and... Uh, and I can't remember exactly, but I, I seem to remember that he hadn't been particularly very well. Um, but actually, um, what he, he he said to the producers, I think what you should do is showcase the understudies because they don't, you know, often get. It's often it can often be a bit of a thankless task. Um, and you know, and and he he urged the company, as far as I understand, to celebrate. Um, the the understudies in, in the way that he did. So it was actually the three of us that covered the Phantom that went on and did West End Live. Um, and and it, that that really speaks volumes for the type of guy that Killing Donnelly is. Um, a really, really brilliant uh, leader of a company. Um, amazing, not only an amazing talent, but just had a real gift for, um, you know, uh, been, a, been a, an, an amazing company member, actually, and, and you know, sort of putting others first um, in, in that way. So, so yeah, and also, not only that, but there was also um, the, the Phantom appeared on the Buckingham Palace party. Um, I got to do the rehearsal for that, which was awesome. So, like, Wellington Barracks, you had, like, the Welsh Guards Orchestra and all that sort of stuff. It, that, that was also incredible, too. So, so it brought a lot of opportunities for me within the year that were amazing. Keeping within the realm of work and things that you've been up to, I've uh, gone online and I've dragged <laughs> out five photos. It's quite small. I would normally have my iPad. But <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Um, I've got five photos of things that you've been involved in. Okay. All you need to do is just expand on what those things are <laughs> okay great let's hope i remember well number one. Oh yeah so this is something that that we did in lockdown um i i'm in I, i'm in uh, a group called west end men and, and my first encounter with west end men was um the producer who's a friend of mine um phoned me on a thursday and said um two questions are you free on monday um, and do you want to go to Thailand? Uh, to which I said, uh, yes and yes. <laughs> um, and um, I, in fact, I don't think I was free, but I made sure I was because yeah. I really wanted to go. And, and we did a concert with the Royal Bangkok Symphony Orchestra in Bangkok, wow. which was incredible. Um, and anyway, since then, um, we've we've done a couple of little things. Uh, we, we, did, we filmed a, a live concert in lockdown from Park Theatre in Finsbury. And uh, this was one of the things that we did in lockdown. So um, I can't remember exactly who is fully to thank for this. But if I remember rightly, um, Matt Abrams, who was the musical director for, um, for West End Men when I was involved in, in Thailand and also at Park Theatre, um, put this together. Um, and this was a, um, a sort of remote orchestral version of Defying Gravity from Wicked that we did uh, and it was dedicated to heroes in the NHS that were obviously working um, working solidly throughout that time um, and it was something that I did from from the comfort of my flat which at the time was quite a new thing um, and whereas now it's just become so normal that you would like oh we're going to do that remotely so you know have you have you have your ring light and your, and your condenser mic out <laughs> and be, be ready to go <laughs> so yeah so that was that was West End Men sing Defying Gravity remotely fantastic uh, Matt Abrams I'm not sure if we've made this connection was at junior RNCM at the same time I was no way wow. he was on trumpet a right. first study at the time okay. um, and then 
Uh, he, I think, has he just finished on the Lion King? Yeah, yeah. If he has finished, yeah. I, but I, I mean, great friend of mine, incredible guy, um, amazingly talented, um, and just a great person to have in the rehearsal room. Um, very chilled, good at what he does, uh, excellent at what he does actually, um, and uh, he's, he's helped me a lot actually, as Matt. I've got a lot to thank Matt for. Um, he gave me a glowing reference for my PGC course. Um, he he ran some sort of advanced music theory uh, classes online over lockdown, which which helped me immensely. Um, so yes, yeah, so I've got a lot to thank Matt for, um, and uh, yeah, I hope he knows that. He, he's yeah. So I, I was I was so pleased that he uh, he got me involved. Yeah, brilliant. I love it. Absolutely brilliant. Um, similar number two. Ah yeah. So this is the show shanties. Uh, this is something that I love being part of, and actually is populated largely by a lot of the people that I sang on chips with. That, that those a lot of those GSA boys that I was telling you about earlier. Um, and this was um, a project that was. Uh, really kind of spearheaded by a guy called Joe Parsons who ran the com- ran the company and the group that I sang with um, on ships and, and various different events um, and uh, became a really great friend throughout all of that um, and then um, he's now the resident director at Les Mis in, in, it was on tour and now he's a resident uh, in, in the West End um, and it's it's kind of it's really led by him Joe Parsons and uh, two, arra- two arrangers um, Ashley Jacobs um, and Harry Style not to be confused whoa <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah I know um, and um, and the, the the work that they do is amazing um, and it, it was the, the whole idea of it was take um, songs from musicals that sort of um, collectively, people had been in, um, and um, and and sort of shantify them because obviously shanties became quite popular Very with popular. Wellerman, you yes, know, set yes, that yes. going. Um, and and what started off really as a bit of a fun project, just sort of post on social media, um, really grew actually. Um, and we we did one with the cast of Hamilton, um, and it got played on Radio Two on a lane page on Sunday and Radio Kent and all these sorts of things. And actually. Um, you know, uh, there, there are some kind of ideas being bounced about. I hope I'm not out of line saying this, but there was some ideas bounced about. We've spent some time in a rehearsal room um, thinking about how we can make the concept into a live show and using what we had available to us in this in this uh, room, really, as percussive sounds and, and things um, to sort of add to it. And it's, it's something that I, you know, is running alongside other things at the moment. And whenever I get the opportunity to, you know, um, do some recording for it or, or whatever, I jump at the chance because it's just, yeah, it feels like a really like a bunch of really good friends doing some really good work together. Um, and yeah, and it, it's great. Yeah. Brilliant. Number three. Ah, oh, right. Okay. Yeah. So this is... This is a photograph of um, me dressed as the Phantom in the Phantom dressing room. This photograph is taken by um, the the Phantom dresser, um, who is an amazing photographer. Uh, she's called Melanie Gowie, um, and she also, to add to her talents, also used to be in the show um, wow. and uh, and has played Carlotta. She's a she's an operatic soprano, and she's a flipping good one as well. Um, she's absolutely amazing. Um, again, for, for all the reasons that I talked about with um, the, uh, the the nurturing care, the, f- <laughs> <laughs> the first and then all the preceding times I, I played that part. Um, but yeah, she she actually does the a lot of the official photographs of the programme for the show now. Um, the the um, the company have really um, recognised her talents with a with a camera. Um, and uh, and yeah, so so this is yeah this is me. I think it might have been in the, the day of the cover run or it might have been my first performance. Um, but yeah, in, in the in the iconic mask, um, which is um, 
I'm incriminating myself is is currently sat in a glass cabinet atop uh, a bureau in my front room. <laughs> um, Where it I, I did I did I did grab it on the last day because I thought <laughs> it doesn't fit anyone else. Yeah, you can't know. Well, it doesn't fit anyone else's face to begin exactly. with. Exactly. So I thought, well, I've, I've got to. Have that. If there's one thing I'm going to take, it's got to be that. Brilliant. And I did email the producers, but they never got back to me. So, <laughs> well, <laughs> so I tried. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, number four. This was Death Takes a Holiday. Um, yeah, so I, I played the role of Corrado Montelli in Death Takes a Holiday. Um, and it was at the Charing Cross Theatre. It was directed by a good friend of mine who I've worked with a lot since then, actually, uh, called Tom Sutherland, who does a lot of really amazing work. Uh, a lot of really exciting work we've done together in sort of new projects and things like that that have not sort of seen the light of day. But um, but yeah, so that, that was a, a show um, by Maury Eston, who... Uh, wrote nine. He also wrote Titanic. Um, in, in, amazing composer, actually. I mean, some of his music is is absolutely stellar. Um, and um, and 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 funny enough, when when I found out that was going to be on, um, I know it sounds like a really a really sort of um, maybe obvious or trivial thing, but I I knew I really wanted to be in that show when it came up. Um, I'd, the soundtrack I think had come out when I was at GSA, um, and and I really wanted to be really wanted to be in it, and um, and and I was given the chance to be, which was which was fantastic. Um, and it's based on a, an old Italian play that was written in about 1931, I think. Um, and it was the it had a, a fairly brief stint on Broadway um, with people like Max Max von Essen played the part that I played and Julian Ovenden was in it as well um, and um, yeah it was we did the UK premiere UK and European premiere of of the show um, which was awesome yeah it was really good fantastic and our last one. Oh, wow God you, you've dug deep um, <laughs> <laughs> this was um, yeah this was. Uh, a, a sort of promotional video that we filmed at a place called the Umbrella Rooms on Shaftesbury Avenue for the Woman in White. We um, we they sort of released this as a single. I seem to remember um, this was a duet called "I Believe My Heart" uh, from the Woman in White. And uh, again, it was played on Elaine Page on Sunday. Um, so I, I wouldn't say I frequented that that show. Um, it sounds but, like your uh, best friends. Yeah, actually. <laughs> <laughs> actually, the two times I've been on it have been mentioned in the in this list. Um, <laughs> yeah, so. Um, but we, but we, we yeah we filmed that at, at the umbrella rooms and and it was it was after a very long day of rehearsal um we didn't really know uh, we, we were very early on in rehearsal so we hadn't really kind of like established that um that kind of rapport and relationship or idea as to what the storytelling in this sort of direct was we kind of thrust in front of a camera um and i i seem to remember uh, and I've been really transparent now, maybe more so than I should be, but I seem to remember that um, one of the producers of the show came and spoke to myself and Anna um, the next day, and I take full responsibility for this, um, that, that some of the footage was was not, um, we couldn't really use it because we were, we were, <laughs> we were laughing, or we tried not to laugh. Um, and I think it was because it was quite early on and we'd had a long day and, and, um, and uh, yeah, and we... we um, had a great relationship throughout the show, Anna and I, um, and used to laugh together a lot. Um, and um, and yeah, and I, th I think that unfortunately it did it trickled into the work somewhat on that one occasion. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the Woman in White actually just as, a, as a, to speak about it as a wider project was a real highlight in my. Uh, time as an actor. I mean, I, I I loved my time doing The Woman in White. And again, it was directed by Tom Sutherland, actually, who directed Death Takes a Holiday. That was another sort of um, highlight of the work that we'd done together. Um, and just because we felt total ownership over the production, it was revived. It was the first revival. Um, we had Andrew Lloyd Webber sat at the table with us um, working through stuff, which was awesome. Mm. Loads of people um, in his team from really useful group involved as well. Um, 
the cast were just just brilliant. Um, you know, the other people that I worked with, I learned so much from working with them all. The other thing was we we were we were doing it in a the the, the woman in white the musical. Um, is actually well obviously the woman in white is a very famous victorian novel by wilkie collins um cited as been i believe one of the kind of the the first ever mystery novels but to give it um just a little bit more of a sort of i think i'm, I'm right in saying that to give it a little bit more of a sort of supernatural element and dimension they actually bookended the woman in white with um a short story by Charles Dickens called The Signalman. Um, and and actually it starts and finishes um, on this kind of railway line and, and it's based on The Signalman by, by Dickens. And what's really appropriate about that was the theatre that, we that we were doing the show in had been a shoe factory that Dickens had worked in as a child um, and had based a lot of his characters that no he then went on to write about um, from his time working in that, in that environment. And not only that, um, Wilkie Collins... Um, wrote a lot. Well, I mean, one of the big innovations at the time was travel, transport. You know, train, tra train networks, and, and things like that. Um, and Wilkie Collins is one of the recurring themes in *The Woman in White*: the, the, the sort of innovation of travel, how it moves between different locations, and, and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and it felt like we were in. Well, we, we, we were in a sense in like a, an old train tunnel because you had Charing Cross Station above you. And the, you could hear the trains rumbling in and out of the station, which in in some productions can be <laughs> can be real inconvenience. But for us, it actually sort of felt like it brought something. Mm. Um, and then the, because it's kind of under the one of the supporting arches that kind of supports the platforms and things, you know, it gave it this kind of this very train tunnelly sort of feel. So so everything about the production and um, the you know the the kind of essence of the building and the heritage of the the location felt so appropriate. Um, and also we had this. Um, I seem to remember we had this kind of like this system that was really basic actually, but it was kind of like these sliding panels that um, sort of slid in front of each other and then would, would part and then the, the woman in white could be behind one of them, you know, she could sort of appear and, and it, it had this kind of very Victorian magic show sort of thing that, uh, about it. And um, one of the, one of the comments about the production when it opened in the West End originally way back when is they had this very, um, pioneering new technology um, where they didn't really have set per se. They had this big kind of LED screen that had like animated images on it. And when they were walking up the stairs, they kind of like, you know, the stairs moved and all that sort of stuff. And 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 um, one of the sort of, you know, I hope I can say this, um, you know, uh, without sounding too negative, but one of the sort of criticisms of it was that it, it felt very modern and it sort of mm. detracted because you had kind of this kind of animated screen and people walking upstairs and, and things like that. Um, and I hasten to add, I didn't see it, so I can't really make any comment of my own. But to, to incorporate these kind of sliding panels and this kind of slightly more Victorian techniques, mm. you know, for how you make people appear and disappear also felt totally appropriate as well. So it was a creative process that I was part of that was an incredibly sort of rich time in my working life. Fantastic. It's absolutely fascinating to hear all the people you've worked with, but also what a wide variety of productions you've been part of as well. You've mentioned that you had it in the back of your mind that you wanted to move north um, after a set, you know, set amount of time to then move into education. And that's what you're doing right now. Do you want to explain what the course is that you're doing and what next year is going to look like for you? Yeah, yeah. So I... Um... Yes, yeah, so I'm I'm doing a PGCE at the moment, um, which obviously you know is the is the kind of the the, the state recognised qualification that you need to be uh, a teacher in a in a classroom, um, and uh, and I'm doing it in secondary music, um, with a view to 
teaching teaching music in in the in the sort of the secondary school classroom i suppose although um uh, i've just accepted a job um at a an amazing school in manchester called st Bede's college which i'm incredibly excited to go um and and work at teaching both drama and music so i, I i'm very fortunate in that way that because obviously musical theater is very much a combined discipline mm. of music and drama and dance and a couple of other things as well i'm i'm lucky that i i found a job that is kind of the hybrid between the two because i suppose when i was choosing routes to go down in terms of the PGCE it was a bit of a toss-up between well do I you know do I train in drama or, or but music felt like a subject that I very much wanted to gr grow into and also singing is kind of I think if, if I was to kind of you know um, rate rate the different skills within the discipline singing for me would kind of be at the top I think so it felt right that I did a, a PGCE in music and I wanted to kind of lead ensembles and and things, you know, like choirs and and, and things. So so music felt right. So so I'm currently um, in my second placement um, at a school in Macclesfield, which is going really well. Um, it, you know, it's it kind of once you sort of get a, a job to go to, um, you feel like you've you've got a real goal. I've got a real goal now, and and um, I'm I'm looking forward to that. But you know, education is is something that has. Uh, you know, been part of, of my professional life for quite a long time, really, because I've taught singing for quite a long time alongside been in shows. I've led workshops. Um, I've led master classes in various colleges. And um, I worked in a vocational uh, college called DMB Academy of Performing Arts for a while uh, throughout lockdown, actually. Um, so it's always been something that I've always done. But going back even further than that, when I was when I was at GSA, I always had a real enthusiasm and taste for for being in that environment, in that educational environment. And I knew that it was somewhere that I, I loved being. And and actually, my favourite thing always about any kind of, any of the acting jobs that I've ever done has been the rehearsal process, that process of development, you know. Um, and I think that education is a bit like that. You know, it's, it's kind of like, it feels very much like a work in progress a lot of the mm -hmm. time. And I really, really enjoy being part of that um, formative development and process. Um, so, so yeah, so, so it felt right... Um, that my wife and I both knew that we wanted to move out of London. Um, we, we we just felt like there was absolutely no hope of ever getting on the property ladder there. Um, there were lots of things about the lifestyle of being in shows that we that didn't really suit where we w felt like our lives were heading in the direction of. Um, it's perfect while you're in your twenties. It's great, you know. And, and there were so many amazing things about living in London. Um, but actually, it, it coincided with us both pretty much turning 30 um, and also the arrival of our daughter as well which um, it, it just made complete sense to um, to move to an area where um, we were closer to both our families and uh, you know we could sort of afford um, just different things you know like we have gardens and parking spaces and things it's you know it's like unheard of in, in when you yeah. live in London um, unless you're one of the lucky ones, I suppose, who either <laughs> bought years ago or, you know, or you've got, you've got significantly more wealth. Mm. Um, but, um, but yeah, and, and actually, you know, for, for me, uh, uh, myself and two of my really good friends from GSA um, do a lot of hiking and walking. We did the coast to coast walk through the lockdown. We've done lots of the Southwest coast path and the Cotswold way and all sorts of things. You know, I knew I wanted to be somewhere where I could incorporate more of that into my life. Um, I'm a very keen cyclist and very proud member of the books and cycling club. So, Fucking you know, well. the, yeah, I know <laughs> big time. Um, so that that's, you know, that's another kind of area of my, my life really that I want to explore more of. And, um, and yeah, and I, I love living in a more rural setting. I, you know, I, I grew up in that kind of environment. I suppose and and it's what it's what feels feels right I mean you know there were all sorts of 
things that kind of happened to us living in London just from a safety point of view. I mean, there was a time when a guy tried to nick my bike while I was riding it. Um, Whilst the, you were riding? Yeah, through Trafalgar Square on the way back from a show. Um, he sort of ran towards me and then gave up on it because um, <laughs> I was <laughs> running just a bit too quickly. Um, wow. And, uh, you know, there, there, were, there were other things. Um, there was a guy that stopped us um, in the in the middle of the night, I, I was driving back from a gig, and I was with my wife, and he, he sort of pulled up alongside us, and it, it looked like he was actually pre- in in the end pretending to point a gun at us because when the police turned over a car, they didn't find a gun, but they did find a hammer, a knife, and Class A drugs, so it okay. could have still been quite yeah yeah. So, um, Hopefully and, you won't get that as much around Buxton. No no, no. I, I, yeah yeah. Th- <laughs> things, that's not the sort of thing you really tend to encounter quite so much. Um, so there were, there were just a couple of things that happened really. Um, that made us, I think, ready to to mm. you know to think about things differently. And actually, a lot of a lot of actors are positioning themselves in different parts of the country now as well. Anyway, um, and I have a very open mind as to where things go. Um, you know, if I work in education for the rest of my life, I'd be very happy with that, providing that it provides a suitable lifestyle and income and all of those things. Um, but if the opportunity arises um, and it all works out for you know my family and and the wide responsibilities that i have to go and do a show again then i'm open to the idea but it but it they you know they come first really um so so yeah so that's that's how i found found myself you know i suppose just shifting the balance really because there was always a bit of educational work in in my work but now it's a it's a really i suppose a sole means with the exception of a couple of gigs and a couple of you know remote things and maybe the odd workshop and you know the odd stint back at Phantom for a short while or whatever. So, so yeah, um. it's really inspirational to hear that because so many people are led um, by their ego and in some respects or by money or by what they feel like they should be doing, but actually putting yourself, your wife, your family first, and then navigating around that, but also being open to. It might be an education for but it also might not, depending on how things go. I think it's really important to be able to um, share that and uh, and pave that way for other people to see that these different ways of doing things are possible as well. Right, well, yeah, and actually that's something that, that we've talked about in the past as well. And, yeah. and I've, I've cited you quite a few times since that conversation oh. as being, you know, you know, you've really found the balance of being, you know, um, a musician at the helm of what you do, but also. Um, not only being an educator, but bringing that work into your education. I've seen you do it. I've seen mm. you demonstrate that brilliantly, um, and you. that's and that's incredibly inspiring. And I think that's what more you know um, that that's the angle. I think that more creative education. I think wants to come from really that you know. And this is something that's of central philosophy from the tutors on my course that you have to teach music in a musical way. You've got to teach music musically. And I think the same is true um, for for teaching drama as well. And when I did my interview at St Bede's, it was it, I had to teach a drama lesson, um, and I thought well. You know, I've got to teach as an actor. I've got, I've got, to, I've got to act. You know, um, so, so yeah. So that's, you know, I, I think that's that's a that's a, a really really good thing. And you know, I got really bogged down at one time in my life where I was like, oh god, you know, I, I, I you know, I, I don't think I can make it work as an actor like long term. And you know, what should I do? Okay, um, maybe I could do like my HGV license, and I could be like, I could be like a freelance truck driver. Yeah, yeah. yeah. As an example, yeah, or yeah. I can be a piano tuner. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. And I, oh, I used to drive my wife insane because. I would come with like different ideas of things, but it, it really, it was just, it was because I felt like, I suppose I had no real longevity in putting all the eggs in the basket of just being an actor. Um, you have to have something else really mm-hmm. um, in order to give you that longevity. But the sad thing occurs when people go, well, this doesn't work for me. I'm, I'm just going to transition to something else completely mm-hmm. without having an open mind, maybe to how the two things can 
mutually benefit each other. Um, Because I think you understand your craft as an artist by breaking things down in the classroom. You know, big style. I learned so much more um, by actually having to explain it to somebody else or show somebody else and really think about what it is. You know, even on on this podcast, talking uh, to um, chatting to David Innes Edwards about his directing, and he was saying, you know, it's not all too often I stop and break down exactly how I I direct and what my process is. So yeah, you're absolutely right. you know, the education and the teaching at whatever age or level will also improve your craft as well. Yeah. So do you think you'll have anecdotes and examples that you could show to your students in, in the future? I hope so. I mean, it's a funny thing with anecdotes, isn't it? Because the the reason that I suppose I, I want to very much maintain an open mind to still gigging and you know doing lots of things is because <laughs> the the person I would hate to become is that guy who is... Back in my day, yeah. this is how it was done, you know. Yeah. And I, I, I suppose I just hope that the the the, the methods and the processes in which, um, you know, I or we used to create really good work at one time, I just, I hope that they still remain current, you know, because actually I have got a very, I suppose, uh, um, I know I sound a bit like Liam Neeson in Taken, but I suppose I've got a very particular set of skills <laughs> that, that, that actually work for me yeah. and, and were, very much became my tool bag as to how you approach and build a character and all that sort of stuff. And um, and, I, and I just hope that, that those tangible skills are still current, um, you know, uh, in years to come, but also by still gigging and, and and developing new work or whatever the opportunities might be it's it broadens your horizons to to new knowledge all the time um, and i think that you know anecdotes and things like that are, are incredibly useful um often in the pursuit of of empathy really mm. like don't worry about it i've been there i've made that mistake yeah you know and i think that's shoes. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah that's where it's really useful actually i think is when people get really like you know um Het up about like you know getting things wrong or because there's this real stigma in education about mistakes in other subjects if you get something wrong it's just wrong mm. and that's the answer it's not 62 it's 83 or whatever yeah. whereas actually in in the creative world making mistakes is is part of the process you have to fail yeah. don't you, you yeah it, um, totally and and it's a bit like what we were talking about before music the arts are not sports it's not yeah. just win or lose it's not right or wrong it's a it's a process even when you are at the end product of showing your work, whatever that work is, yeah. that's not the end. You're still learning from it and you'll take that into your next work. And yeah. and being able to have educators that understand that is so vital. Otherwise, we can condense it to be something that it's not. It's yeah, so yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think that like it's, it's funny you mentioned about sports there because the, like, the competitive nature in schools, it, it's inherent. You know, like sports is treated, re- you know, and if you want to, particularly engage like young lads in in music i did find it quite effective to sort of try and find some kind of way in which you could appeal to their sporting personalities Mm -hmm. but absolutely not in a way that is competitive and exclusive like you know we've talked about this before that that um you know um clapping starters you know like clapping rhythm stuff is a great first activity in a music class because you're doing music you're engaging in musical activity but also you know you can do something like right we're going to pass the sound when the person you know before you was clapped you you know and how fast can you get that around the circle it engages that competitive edge mm. but then when you move on to the next thing which might be a you know don't clap this rhythm or something like that you'll often you'll often get students saying to you can he can he be out can he be out if he gets it wrong mm. and you go well no because 
we're developing a skill. Here it's we not, are. It, yeah, we're not excluding people. Yeah, the, the, the people that get it wrong need to be in because yeah, they yeah. need to be. If anything, you should be out. There. Yeah, 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 I know. Yeah, because you're nailing this, so you can go, <laughs> yeah. go, go, you know, go and get yourself a drink. You know. Yeah, yeah, sure. um, <laughs> so, so yeah, so so it is an interesting thing, and, and it's it's a real central philosophy of mine that it's, it's okay to get things wrong. You know, it's okay to make mistakes, and anecdotes like you mentioned are really useful for that. Going don't worry because i've done things way worse and much more embarrassing so you know give yourself a break <laughs> i love it it's, it's, it's brilliant that brilliant um now one of the final uh traditions that we have on the podcast is that previous people that have been on we take a polaroid which we'll do in a minute but they also forward a question to a future guest wow. and i'm going to take one and um I've asked this to somebody else before, but I'm interested in your answer. Okay. Um, this is from Caitlin Inez Edwards, who's a, a wonderful actress and playwright. Um, if you were only given five minutes to come back after you had died, where would you go? There's three rules. It would only be for five minutes. You can't see any family or friends. And it can be anywhere in the world or outside of the world. <laughs> I've been mugged off there, big time. That is a tough question. It's really hard. So, uh, oh, wow, okay. So, I can't see any friends or family. Five minutes. Um, I think it would... I don't know. I, that is a really, really difficult question because I, I've got some really amazing memories in lots of different places. Um, oh. I think it would be I think it would be the village that I grew up in, El Elvington, I think. Um there's something very peaceful about going back there um and just taking a little walk around the village. Um you know that that always kind of take it always sort of takes me back to a time in my life where there maybe were less pressures or what felt like it, you know. Or maybe I'm romanticizing a bit, I don't know. Um I think it would be to have to to take a, a stroll around Elvington and probably my childhood home, I think. But that, that's probably the answer to that, that everyone gives. It maybe sounds like a real cliche. I don't know. But it wasn't the answer the, uh, the other person gave. The other person gave. So right, yeah. I think I, like I that. think that would be it. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. Thank you so much for everything you've you've gone through today. It's been fascinating. I've learned a lot. Oh, um, good. Yeah, me too. And uh, <laughs> and and we should we should do this again in uh, a year a year on or something. Uh, you know, seeing how it's going at St. Beads and uh, probably some anecdotes from the classroom as well, which would, which would be hilarious <laughs> and brilliant. Um, thank you. Thank you. Wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing, remember to create with people, connect with people, but most importantly, be exactly you. Until the next time, peace.